0: Good morning, please stand for the reading of God's word. Today, I'll be reading Judges 4, which is on page 203 in the back Bibles around the room, if you would like to follow along. When I finish, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And in response, we'll say, thanks be to God, which is our response to God's gift of scripture. And the people of Israel again did what was evil on the side of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in herosheth Hagoim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh-Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. And had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaninim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoim, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all of the men who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And she said, he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes to you and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him. And drove the pig into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent pig in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, church. Dear God, we thank you so much for bringing each and every one of us here today Lord, we thank you that through your word, you show us that you can and will choose anyone in any way to fulfill your purposes and your promises, Lord. Thank you for providing for us the deliverer that we needed. Help us, Lord, to see our deep need for that Savior, Jesus. I pray, Lord, as we listen to the message today, that our hearts and your ears would be open to your truth, that our minds would be quieted and focused only on you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you for that great reading. Please be seated. Um, Well, my name is Andrew. I'm uh, one of the deacons here. It's my privilege to serve as the the deacon of maintenance and and cleaning of the facilities. Um, And this morning, it's my privilege to bring God's word to you. Um, It's an awesome task, a great privilege, and I'm thankful for it. Um, I love the Bible. The Bible is an awesome storybook. Uh, It's really a big rescue story when you think about it. It starts off, God creates everything and he pronounces it very good. Everything was the way it was supposed to be, it was harmonious. But if you read just a little further, you realize it didn't last terribly long. Um, You realize that a great enemy of God's creation and of God himself enters into the scene, namely Satan. And he tempts uh, God's creation, Adam and Eve specifically, to disobey God, to doubt God, to distrust God. And they fall for that. And the Bible tells us that everything in creation started to break apart at that point. Um, And we we feel the consequences of that down to this present day. Everything is broken. Through that disobedience that Adam and Eve uh, committed against God, Sin entered into the world and the scripture tells us death came as a result of sin and all of the suffering and and pain that we go through. And so God's very good creation was marred. It was broken. But on that dark and, and really terrible day, God provided a promise, a sweet promise, a promise that one day he would send a savior who would make all things right And that would largely start by this savior, this rescuer crushing the head of that great enemy who brought evil into God's perfect creation. The cool thing is that the savior, while there's not many details given, we do know right in those early pages of scripture that the savior would be an offspring of uh, the woman specifically, it would be a human being. And so as the story of the Bible unfolds, we see God's people in perpetual need of a savior. They find themselves in in tough places very often, and God in his grace gives them many saviors through the story. All of these, we'll call them like small saviors or low-key saviors as it were, are pointing us to the ultimate savior, the one who the promise was made about all the way back in those early pages in Genesis, the one who would crush the head of God's enemy and our greatest enemy, the one who would crush the head of Satan. Today's story falls right in line with that theme of God sending saviors. Uh, And and again, like this, these lowercase saviors are all pointing us to the uppercase savior, Jesus Christ. And they teach us things uh, about the uppercase savior as we look at these different um, lowercase saviors. So today we're going to be looking at uh, this account from Judges 4. I'll also be referencing chapter 5, although we won't have time to go through it in a ton of detail. But basically, we'll pick up the story when God had chosen a special people, the Israelites, to make his own people. Um, You'll recall he made some amazing promises to Abraham, the father of the nation, said that he would give him a land, a bountiful land so that he would give him many descendants and said that he would give him an heir who would bring blessing to the rest of the world. Well, that promise looked like it probably wasn't going to happen when Abraham's family, a few hundred years later, found themselves as slaves in Egypt working for Pharaoh. But God Seeing his people in need of a savior and hearing their cries for a savior, sent them a savior, Moses. And you'll recall how God brought 10 plagues upon the land of Egypt and mightily rescued them from that oppression and brought them to a mountain where he entered into a covenant with them, made them promises, gave them his laws, promised to bless them if they loved him and kept his commands and promised that they would be cursed Uh, if they did not follow his commands and and love him and, and if they turned away from him. And then through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they finally make it to the gates of the promised land. And in a lot of ways, it's like they're getting a fresh start it's almost like a new creation in a sense where everything has the potential to be very good again. They're gonna come into this new land, fresh start, no longer slaves. But instead of taking advantage of this this new lease on life, they actually find themselves in a repetitive pattern of sin, servitude or slavery, supplication, calling out to God, and then salvation, God raising up a rescuer. And so that pattern, that fourfold pattern of sin, slavery, supplication, and salvation is going to be uh, kind of my outline today as we go through this text. We'll see all four of those elements in the text today. I'm going to spend most of my time on the fourth element, the salvation, because that's where the text focuses. So let's jump right in and and take a look, uh, first of all, at sin. Um, But before we do that, let me say my main point today is that God graciously rescues his people through an unlikely savior. God graciously rescues his people through an unlikely savior. That's kind of the big theme of what's going on in this chapter and the next. So point one, sin. You don't have to look very far to find it. Uh, If you look down again at verse one in chapter four, it says the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was the previous judge. Um, He's gone, and the people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Isn't that what sin is? Uh, Ultimately, sin is what is evil in God's sight, not necessarily like what we deem to be evil in our estimation or, or, or like what society might say is evil. Evil and good are not culturally conditioned they're God conditioned, (laughs) like God sets the rules on what is good and what is evil because it flows from his character. Everything that is good is rooted in who God is. Everything that is evil is contrary and against what God is in his nature, in his person, in his being. And so the people of Israel find themselves um, committing evil. Chapter two and verse 11 and following kind of fills in the gaps on what this evil looked like. It involved Baal worship, Asheroth worship. Um, Kyle told us like just how evil some of these pagan worship practices were. Uh, Basically the children of Israel slapped God in the face and said like, we don't really care that you brought us to this cool land. We're done with you. And we want to serve the gods of the people in this area. It's sad. And God takes note of it. But isn't it interesting as we look here at verse one, that they did this evil after Ehud died. Ehud was a restraining influence on the nation. Ehud kind of kept everybody in line as it were, but as soon as he died, their true colors were shown. Their true character came out. And, And I think it can be like the same with us. I mean, I'll just speak from personal experience. As a kid, the external influences in my life, namely my mom and dad, kept me in line and kept me looking pretty good, kept me going to church, you know, kept me doing the right things. Um, and it wasn't until I was finally on my own that my true colors were shown. And, and so I would just say, like, ask yourself that question. Like, if, if you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, like, why is that? Is it because of the external pressures or societal expectations on you? In, in our you know, community, or is it because like, you just really love the Lord because he's changed your heart? Um, don't deceive yourself in, into thinking that you're really following the Lord if it's just the external pressures that are keeping you in line. Um, and so the people fall into sin. They do this during a period of great prosperity and rest. Look back with me just for a moment on chapter three, verse 30, it's the very uh, second to last verse in chapter three. The end of the verse says that the land had rest for 80 years. This is a really long period of rest in the book of Judges. And during that period of rest, you would think that the people would be so thankful that their hearts would be turned towards God in a more dramatic way than previously, but that's not what happens. And in our own experience, That's usually not what happens, at least in my own experience. When times are difficult, that's when God has my attention. That's when I feel like I need him. But when things are good and I feel pretty comfortable and and like, you know, the money's coming in, the work is good, things are rolling right along— It's super easy to forsake him, neglect him, live as though he doesn't really exist. Yeah, maybe I'll make like a token appearance on Sunday, but my thoughts, my heart, like my actions, they're not Godward focused. They're focused on my idols, the stuff in my life, the things that I think are keeping me happy, keeping me going. And so let's be careful during times of prosperity that our hearts are not turned away from God but they actually should be more turned to him in thankfulness and in praise, just recognizing like, my goodness, you've been so good to me. Like, how could I forget you now? Um, And so I I think we can take that away from just the realization that this period of sin happened after an 80-year period of blessing. So sin always costs us more than what we want to pay, doesn't it? Um, And in the case of the Israelites it cost them a lot. It cost them slavery. That leads us into our, our second point, sin, slavery. We see it in verse two, read it with me. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hegoim. Who sold them? Yeah, the Lord, like he's sovereign over that. And, and this was his just judgment on the fact that they had forsaken him and had gone and worshiped false gods. Um, there's two characters that you should keep in mind throughout the story. Jabin, the king of Canaan, and especially Sisera. That's the commander of Jabin's army. Um, Sisera was a bad dude, and we'll talk more about him later. But those two characters are introduced at this point in the story. And, you know, isn't it the case like, we all make idols. Like, like we're, I don't think any of us are serving Baal or the Asheroth. But, but we all have things in our life that we've made more important than God, that we place as greater value than God. Um, just making a, a good thing a God thing is making an idol. And isn't it interesting how our idols enslave us? Like, when we turn from God to, to sin, like, we get enslaved by our idols. I was kind of thinking through in my own life, like, where this has happened. Um, where I've been enslaved to idols, and I, I just made a list that I think um, is definitely indicative of my life. Maybe you'll resonate with some of this. Maybe you have other idols. Our hearts are all idol factories, as John Calvin said. But I find my own heart uh, worshiping the idol of productivity, my own success, or or that of someone else I care about. Um, I can worship my hobbies, uh, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of possessions. Um, addictions, other others thoughts and opinions of me, I can worship that. Or like just my own comfort can, can worship that and make these things what really has my heart, what I really want, what I'm really pursuing out of life. But all of these things enslave me. Like idols do that. They. It's like drinking salt water. <laughs> You're like, I'm thirsty. And the idol's like, here you go. Here's a glass of salt water. Oh, thanks. And you drink it but you're more thirsty. And so you go back to the idol and and it gives you another cup of salt water. and Oh, thanks. And it maybe feels like your thirst is quenched for a brief moment, but it actually leaves you more dehydrated than when you started. Um, Jesus offers living water. It's a great alternative to idols. Um, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, when when you get sick of drinking the salt water, like there's been times in my life where I'm just like, oh, this hobby brings me so much joy and pleasure, and I I worship it. And I invest money in it, and it brings me happiness. And then the next year, not so much. And then the next year, even less. And then the next year, even less. I'm like, what are you doing? You're letting me down. They do they do. And the longer you live and the more things you try, the more you'll realize, like Solomon, that there's only one who satisfies. There's only one who's worth serving, and it's, it's not our idols. Um, but we need to, and I don't want to hang out too long here because it's not the main point of the text, but I do want to just ask you, like, how do you identify idols? Let me give you a quick list of, of ways that I use to help identify idols in my own life. I think that idols... Uh, can be identified because they control our emotions. Like, if we get what we want from the idol, then, like, we're happy. But if we don't get it, then we're mad or upset. Um, Others have to support our idol or at least not get in the way of it or they will pay. (laughs) Like, you know, you will let them know, like, hey, I wanted to watch the football game this afternoon and and you didn't let that happen. Like, that was not cool. Um, (laughs) it's not even football season, but I'm ready for it. Um, (laughs) Third, they demand a lot of thought time often or actual time and often a lot of money as well. Um, They will inhibit you from doing what God wants you to do, specifically thinking of like the idol of comfort. Uh, God might be calling you to, to do something for his kingdom, for his people. And you're like, Oh, but it's so comfortable where I'm at here in the U.S. Like, I don't want to go down to South America, or I don't want to go be in the city for this. Like, I just want to keep it chill here. Uh, so they will inhibit you from doing what God wants you to do. You will find your worth um, from it. Uh, you're addicted to it oftentimes. You just, you cannot let it go. Uh, you find your security in it, and you often turn to it during stressful times. Um, So these are just a few ways that we can identify our idols. But we don't have to be stuck as slaves to idols. Jesus doesn't want that. Jesus wants to rescue us from those idols. And that starts by calling out to him. That's our third point, supplication. It's just an S word that means prayer, that means calling out to God. And that's what we see um, in verse 3. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he, Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Uh, Wow, that's (laughs) this guy was a bad dude. He had 900 chariots, which were like the modern day equivalent of tanks, and he probably got whatever he wanted from the people of Israel. I mean, you can just see it, right? Like Sisera shows up in the Israelite village and is like, hey, guys. I noticed you just finished harvesting your crops. Um, Here's my wagon, please fill it up. And if anybody hesitated or was like, no, we don't wanna give you all of our food, he probably just pointed to the 900 chariots sitting up on the hill and the wagon was loaded. This guy was bad, like he, he cruelly oppressed God's people. This was the longest oppression that the Israelites had been under since leaving Egypt and, and the cruelest as well. It, it was a, a very hard and difficult time for the nation. Israel was in desperate straits. They really needed a savior to come in and crush the head of their enemy. You know, we need to get to that point in our lives where we realize we need a Savior. Um, Man, here in America, like, honestly, we have it so good that it's like, like, my job is my Savior. Like, I just, I go to work, the check comes, I buy stuff, you know, it works. Um, No, like, we need to realize that we need a better Savior than anything America has to offer us. Um, We need a savior from our greatest problem, namely sin, which is separating us from a holy God. And and so I pray that like, you don't wait 20 years like the children of Israel did to cry out for a savior. Like if God's speaking to you and just showing you the vanity of your idols, like cry out to him today. Don't keep fighting that. Don't just like try to replace the current failing idol with another idol, because that one will also fail. Um, So don't, don't wait 20 years. You know, God loves to bring salvation to his people when they cry out for it. Romans ten thirteen says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's where we're heading next. Our fourth point, salvation. Um, this is a gracious salvation. Uh, and this is an unexpected salvation through an unlikely savior. The stage is well set. You've got A people who thought that they were going to enjoy a very prosperous land. But since their hearts turned from God to idols, God sold them into the hand of the surrounding nation, the Canaanites. And they're being cruelly oppressed. It's a dark time. They're ready for somebody to walk in wearing a cape. (laughs) Enter Deborah. So verse 4. Let's read uh, about Deborah. Verse 4 and 5. Now Deborah... A prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. This woman was a prophetess, a civil leader, and a distinguished judge. Uh, she would settle disputes in her art outdoor courtroom underneath this palm tree. I think that'd be an awesome place to hold court. Um, it was about nine miles north of Jerusalem. And as a prophetess, uh, she would have been receiving like direct revelation from God and been sharing that with the nation. She was the godliest of all the judges, um, which maybe doesn't mean a whole lot because a lot of them were really messed up but but her actions like her actions consistently pointed to God and not away from him she was a godly woman there's there's no doubt about it and obviously she was a female um the most distinguished judge the godliest judge she was a woman like god uses women in his story a lot. People have this idea like, oh yeah, Christianity, that's that patriarchal, like, you know, suffocating religion for women. It shouldn't be. Um, Deborah here is like a judge, civil leader. Um, She's a prophetess, and and, and she's a very gifted individual. Um, No doubt, like a multitasker, like crazy. God wants to use your gifts as a woman, speaking to the women now, God wants to use your gifts in great ways. Like you're made in his image and within the roles that he has given to you, I hope that you find a lot of freedom there to express yourself as a person um, and and to use your gifts and abilities and talents for the Lord. Uh, Well, Deborah gets this message from the Lord that God was going to rescue his people and a man named Barak was to raise an army and lead them into battle. And so that happens in verses six and seven. Uh, Deborah sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Um, there, there is a question mark there, but this is emphatic. It's saying like, yeah, God has said this, so go and do it. And you all kind of laughed at uh, the next verse when it was read before the sermon, because it's sort of funny. You see Barak's response in verse eight. This guy's like, if you will go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I'm not gonna go. (laughs) There's definitely some fearful mistrust here. Um, I'm not gonna say that Barak was like terminally inflicted with the wimp disease. But, like, he definitely had a good touch of it for sure. Um, This guy, you know, this guy probably, like, just wanted her presence because her presence symbolized the presence of God. And if you're going to face down, like, 900 tanks, you want to make sure God is with you. Um, So, like, I get that. You know, that's cool. Um, But I also think what we can learn from Barak is that God is not so much interested in the amount of our faith as he is interested in the object of our faith, is our faith in his son. The reason I say that is that Barak finds himself in a distinguished hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, You'll remember like Hebrews 11 has the account of many great biblical characters who exercise great faith and sometimes not so great faith, but their faith was in God, so it was great faith. Barak is in there. And so I would just say this as a word of encouragement, Maybe there's times in your life where your faith is kind of weak and waning and, and you have some doubts, but as long as you're still holding on to Jesus, you're on the right path and your faith will get you to heaven. Jesus gets you to heaven, but he uses faith. Um, so so hold on. Like, even though your faith might not be rock solid, um, as long as you're holding on to Jesus, you're holding on to the right thing. So in verse 9, um, <laughs> we see the consequences of Barak's response. Be like, eh, I don't really want to go if you're not coming, but if you come, like, let's do it. So the, the consequences in verse nine here, and she, Deborah, said to Barak, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak probably thought, that the hand of the woman that Cicero was going to get sold into would be Deborah's hand. (laughs) But it actually isn't. It's a really awesome uh, story just from a literary perspective. So in verse 10, Barak and Deborah go and assemble the army. army. Um, I can just kind of see it, you know, like they're walking along together to go assemble the army. And then Barak's like do you mind if I hold your hand? Okay. <laughs> you know, like, kind of, Deborah sort of like leads him off to assemble the army. Debra kind of is like holds his hand the whole time. Um, but anyways, they go and get this army together, 10,000 people, primarily from two of the tribes of Israel. There's 12 tribes all together, but, uh, chapter five actually indicates that there were several other tribes who joined them in this battle. And there was a few tribes who didn't join them in the battle. Um, just didn't want to get involved or afraid or whatever, Uh, but they go and get the army together. So the stage is continuing to be set for this great battle. You've got uh, Beric and Deborah holding hands, getting the army together, and there's going to be a great showdown. And then verse 11 happens. Verse 11 is seemingly random. Let's read it together. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the Oak and Zaninim, which is near Kadesh. Like, who cares about Heber, the Kenite, and that this guy moved from his family and went a little bit north to Kadesh by some oak trees or whatever it was. Like, that seems completely random. Um, And it was completely random, but... In God's sovereignty, that was a very important move, and we'll find out why in a few verses. But before, like, we just continue on. Let me say this: sometimes the completely random or seemingly random events in our life are used greatly by God. So, like, don't discount um, things that seem kind of out of place or strange. Like, God might be setting up something to to really use you or, or to to bless others through you or bless you. Like, you know, we never know what God's up to, but don't discount the seemingly small and random things that go on in your life. This, this crazy guy who's like distantly related to the Israelites through Moses' father-in-law happens to just move north a little bit, breaking off from the rest of his clan, which is kind of weird, probably a family feud or something. Um, but it's going to be super important to, to the salvation story that we're going to see in a few minutes. So yeah, verse 12 and 13, we see Sisera. Now remember, Sisera is Jabin, the king of Canaan's commander of his army. So Sisera is a bad dude. He's the one with the 900 tank chariots. We see him getting ready for this battle. It says, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, And all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hegoim to the river Kishon. And I can maybe use a little imagination here, if you'll allow me that. I kind of see Sisera, like he gets word that these Israelite slaves are putting together a ragtag army. And he's like, oh, seriously? Like, what are they up to now? Like, come on, give me a break. Are you guys really going to come up against me and my 900 chariots? Like, what idiots, what fools? Well, oh well, I guess after I kill them all, then all their stuff and their wives and their kids will belong to me, so whatever. Come on, boys, let's go have some fun. That's kind of how I see Cicero getting ready for this battle. But there's an ironic reversal of, of what we would expect to happen in the next three verses because God shows up. Let's go ahead and, and read the next three verses, starting in verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. That's a lot, but that's not a lot compared to what Sisera had with him, plus those uh, tanks that he had. And verse 15, And the Lord routed or confused Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hegoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So Deborah and Barak are actually up on this high hill before the battle starts. Deborah gives the go, and they run down the hill into this valley. And there's a river down there called the Kishon. And it says that the Lord routed or confused Sisera and his army. This actually happened through uh, two means. One was a human means, the sword, that Israelite army. But the second was actually a divine means, namely the weather. We read in the next chapter, which is a poetic retelling of this story, that God caused um, (laughs) creation itself to fight against Sisera. Go ahead and flip the page to chapter 5, and let's look at verse 20 and 21 together. It says, From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. Which is like just a way to say, I mean, I don't think the stars were literally falling, but it's a way to say like, The natural world was fighting against him. And then, verse 21 the torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Kishon is that river down in the valley. If it swept them away, that means that there was an untimely storm that happened, like a huge rainstorm that would have swelled this river, probably overflowed its banks, and created a muddy mess that would have rendered those 900 chariots useless. That's cool. One early commentator, I think it was Josephus, um, also said that God had sent hail, large hailstones on Sisera and his army, like pounding them in the face. So Maybe that's the case. Like, whatever happened, you can see it, right? Like, there's this hill with all the Israelite army, and down in the valley, you've got Sisera and all of his army, and all of a sudden, like, rain and hail and all sorts of craziness starts happening down in the valley, but not up on the hill, and then Deborah's like, okay, it's time, and they run down the hill, and they're already in confusion, and it says that they killed every last man. That's incredible. That should not have happened from a bunch of ragtag slaves. God made that happen. Now to our 21st century um, American ears, like that sounds kind of cruel. Like God allowed everybody in that army to get killed. But let me say this, God often uses people to accomplish his justice Sisera um, and Sisera's army were not good people. Like, we actually read in chapter 5 um, that in verse 30 that Sisera's practice was, after he had won a battle, to go and, and rape all the women. Like, it says, Have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man? What that's saying is like, Yeah, a couple girls for every soldier. Like, he was not a good man. And, and, again, like Sisera, he was not worshiping the true God. He was worshiping you know, Baal and the Asheroth and had been oppressing God's people for all this time. So justice came and we should celebrate that. We should be okay with that. Um, like Kyle said the other week, we need to let God be God and be okay with that. So everybody escapes except for the most important person, Sisera, the commander of the army, gets away. He gets off of his chariot and starts running. And this is where that crazy random verse 11 verse comes into play. Because Heber the Kenite, who had moved from uh, down south from his family and gone a little bit north, he is friends with Sisera and their people. So Sisera makes a beeline for Heber, the Kenite, and when he shows up, Heber's wife, Jael, is there to greet him with all the southern hospitality that a redneck country bumpkin can muster. No, and I like, and I think she was like this woman was no joke. Like she was a tough cookie. Think about it though. Like she just left the rest of the family on this move that they made north, and so like just to survive, she had to work hard. Like this woman probably had calloused hands. Her arms probably made Rosie the Riveter's arms look flabby. Like she was a tough, tough person. Um, and so you could see it. Cicero is like comes huffing and puffing. And sees jail. like, thank goodness, I made it to Heber the Kenite's tent, um, I'm going to be safe. And jail welcomes him, hey, come on into the tent, here's a blanket, looks like you could use some rest. And he asks for some water, she gives him milk to drink, um, and, and the guy's exhausted. And then she says, uh, I'm sorry, he says to her, like, if anybody comes, don't let them know I'm here. And, and she's like, okay, that sounds good. And then he falls asleep. And the text says that she comes up to him quietly with a hammer and a tent peg, like a big old nail. And and this isn't like the the tent pegs that you get in your Walmart tent that are about yay long. Like, Like this is a big tent peg. And she sneaks up to this guy and puts that tent peg on his temple and pounds it through his head the Bible's not exactly a rated G book. <laughs> and the guy dies. Um, and that's crazy. Like the most unexpected savior, right? She's she's a woman. She's not a soldier. She's not even an Israelite. She's like a very distant relative. Um, I don't even know that she was a worshiper of the true God necessarily. Um, like the most crazy person to, to kill the general of of the army but yet she does and then a couple minutes later or i don't know maybe a few hours later whatever you see barric he's in pursuit of sisera and I can just see it, like, Jill's probably outside of her tent, you know, maybe, like, making a little stew or whatever. And she sees Barrett coming, and she's like, hey, Barrett, come over here for a sec. I want to show you something. And uh, it says that she brought Barak into her tent, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg still through his head. Like, that's a pretty nasty mess in your house, but uh, there he was. Um, so, so God brought an amazing salvation, an amazing victory through an unlikely savior. Um, man, so crazy, but like, that's how God works a lot of times. He does things in a different way than what we'd expect, but it's him doing it. And that's how this chapter four concludes. It says as a summary statement in verse 23, So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. They were free. God had brought salvation to his people. He used means, but ultimately this was coming from God's hand. Um, And so we're Already out of time, um, but if you 'll just hang with me for a couple more minutes, I just want to give a, a brief description of Chapter Five. Um, chapter Five is a poetic retelling of the story that we just went through it 's using song it 's a song of praise to God, and I think as a point of application like it 's appropriate to sing songs of praise to God because He has saved us, um, and so that 's what they 're doing here, and it basically can be divided into three sections with three different contrasts. I'm actually getting this from Dale Davis, a good commentator on the book. He says that the first section, the first contrast is in verses one through 11, where you see an all-powerful and all-sufficient God being contrasted with desperate and hopeless Israelites. The second division, the second contrast as well, is in verses 11 to 23, where you have daring Israelite warriors Contrasted with cautious brothers who wanted to like play it safe and not get involved in the battle. And then the third contrast is in verse 24 to 30, where we see blessings for jail. Jail was a foreigner, but she definitely was an outsider who became an insider that day. Um, you see the contrast between blessing for jail contrasted with scorn for the mother of Sisera. So that's kind of the breakdown if you want to read it later, chapter five. And then I will read verse 31 because it provides an excellent uh summary statement in chapter 5. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for 40 years. Uh, you want to be a friend of God? Like you seriously do because no, I'm like for real because God can destroy you. Um and sometimes he might use the weather to do that or, you know, like if, this is a, a very sobering reality, but like if we die in our sins as an enemy of God, the scripture says that God will destroy us in hell. Um, so you want to be a friend of God. You, you really do. You don't want to be one of his enemies who who perishes. Um, man, let me just wrap this up by saying this. As awesome as Deborah and as awesome as Jail were in in rescuing God's people, they just point us to an even awesomer Savior, an even greater Savior, and His name is Jesus. We have freedom here in America; like nobody's oppressing us, which is awesome. But we are slaves to our sin. Our sin is a major problem. Everything that we do that's evil in God's sight just makes us further and further and further from having a relationship with him. But Jesus came to pay the penalty for all of our sin so that we could be made right with God. We could be friends of God. And like I said, you wanna be a friend of God. And, And so I would just encourage you today, like maybe you just kind of feel the brokenness Of life, and you're like, yeah, the things that I go to for for hope and for joy, like they just are letting me down. It's like I'm drinking salt water. Like you were saying, Jesus offers you fresh water, living water. Jesus offers you salvation from your sin, the greatest problem that you have. Um, Jesus is a mighty savior way stronger than jail. His arms are way bigger than hers even. Um, and, and, And he's mighty to save. He'll do it today. So all you need to do is put your faith in him. Be like, yeah, Jesus, I believe that on the cross, you were paying the penalty for my sin and that through faith in you, I can be made a friend of God. I want that. I want to worship you instead of these dumb idols that are always letting me down. Maybe you've already done that. I hope you have. If so, I hope that you love Jesus more as you recognize how great a salvation he's accomplished for you. Like, don't let the fact that he's blessed you with this amazing salvation cause you to depart from him. Like, make it be something that drives you to him in gratitude and in love. Maybe just take a moment and reflect on the pit that he pulled you out from um, and the things that he has in store for you in eternity. Um, Jesus is the Savior who crushes the head of our greatest enemy. Chapter 5 uh, tells us in, in verse 26 that Jael crushed the head of Sisera. But way back in Genesis, there was promised a deliverer who would crush the head of the devil. And 1 John tells us that Jesus came for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. You gotta be with Jesus. He's the ultimate savior. So turn to him today, love him more, trust him more. Don't get distracted with idols and other dumb crap. Let's pray. (laughs) Uh, God, we do. Like we get distracted with the most stupid things that turn our attention away from you, uh, that turn our hearts away from you. And we think that we're happy and secure and and successful and, and pretty much doing all right. But the reality is that we need you. Show us that we need you. Um, show us that that when we cry out to you, you show up, that you come, that you are mighty to save. I pray for anyone here that, that doesn't, hasn't yet run to Jesus as their savior, that they do that today. And for those of us that have, I pray that we'd love him more because he is a great savior. He is the greatest savior. He will completely destroy the devil. Um, His death has accomplished salvation for all of, of your people. And we praise you for that. It's in his name we pray. Amen.